0: Welcome to Samovar, a weekly visit with Aaron Lansky at the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Emma Morgenstern. I'm sitting with Aaron, the Center's founder and president, and today we'll talk about translation of Yiddish works into other languages. Good morning, Aaron.
1: morning, Emma. We're back.
0: We're back. With a great
1: (laughs) subject today.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, So on November 12th and 13th, Aaron, we had about 100 people here at the Center for a translation conference um, hosted by us and by the Fund for Translation of Jewish Literature. The conference was called Translating Yiddish Literature, Mobilizing a New Generation. So what was the importance of sticking new generation into that title?
1: Oh, uh, mainly because our old strategy which was working with an older generation has sort of played itself out and I'll, I'll explain. So I, I think I could back up and just say Long before we thought of having a translation conference, we thought about trying to translate Yiddish literature. And the problem's gigantic, or the challenge, I should say. is really gigantic. So most people find this kind of amazing, but at this point, something less than 2% of Yiddish literature has been translated into English. And a lot of that translation was sort of the you know, after the war, I think there was this attempt to kind of eulogize a world that had been destroyed. So, a lot of the works that were translated were the Shmaltziya works and the works that, you know, showed Jewish life and all its contradictions and conflicts and grittiness and sexuality. You know, those books, which I should add are probably the best literature, you know, were often, were often overlooked. So, it's really a, a gigantic problem. So, you know, we've had this program now for years at Yale University Press called the New Yiddish Library. And uh, it's been a all-star cast of editors. David Roski, one of the very best Yiddish scholars and translators in the world, uh, was the editor-in-chief of it. We spent a tremendous amount of money, ten years of effort, produced ten exquisitely good books, I mean really great scholarly translations, but we had a number of really big problems with them as well. Not only were they expensive, it took a very long time to do them. Uh, Most of the people who did the translation pretty old you know not not all of them so i got to be careful with that but you know many were in their 80s already some some are no longer with us and uh, sales have been really really small like we've sold two three hundred copies of a book after you know several years of work and uh, and then the last problem was that You know, at our current rate of progress, and we we were kind of very proud of ourselves putting out 10 amazing books in 10 years, until you back off a little and say, yikes, at that rate, it's going to be another, what, like, you know, 39,000 years before this project's complete. So obviously... You know, many people might argue that you need to go to, the, you know, the older people who know how to translate the literature and have been doing this for years and it's the only way to approach it all. But if we keep up at that level, you know, we're not going to get there. So the only way to translate a lot of literature is to translate a lot of people, and the only way to do that is to translate a lot of young people. So that's why the conference happened.
0: All right. So who is actually at the conference?
1: Well, we, we budgeted for 25 people that that's what we thought would attend, and uh, we ended up, I think, 98 Showed up before we cut off registration because the fire marshal wouldn't let us have any more people in the room. You know, <laughs> so that that blew us away. I mean, you know, and, and I think what was even more gratifying was who was there. So it was a lot of uh, you know kind of senior people in the field, the best bibliographers, uh, the the best translators the best editors and scholars, they all showed up. But along with them, the place was just full of young people, some of whom were just starting out as translators, some of whom had never translated before, but really, really wanted to try to do this. So already it was an auspicious beginning because you kind of had the mix there to make all this uh, possible.
0: So can you name some names?
1: Of course. <laughs> but well, the keynote, which I'll talk about in a second, was by Larry Rosenwald, his professor at Wellesley. Uh, and who is involved with our new Yiddish Library project? A wonderful scholar of, of, of literature who just has a you know, kind of really keen and practical insight into the challenges of translation. Um, along with him, Barbara Harshov, who's the head of the American uh, Literary Translators Association, uh, um, local Lon Stavins, Justin Cammy, who teaches at Smith College. And actually, Justin was the one of the people who set all this in motion because he published a his wife wrote an article in the Forward, in the English Forward, and Justin made this appeal that we needed—I don't think he used the term—but he was calling for a kind of Manhattan Project. You know, we needed a mobilization to, you know, get everybody working on this project so we can get hundreds of works into uh, into English. Um, Faith Jones, who's a wonderful librarian, formerly at the New York Public Library, now in Vancouver. Uh, Zachary Baker, probably the best Yiddish bibliographer in the world. Uh, or Solomon Beinfeld, who's a retired professor. Along with uh, Harry Bachner, they're producing the uh, this n- translation or kind of a redoing of a Yiddish-French dictionary that was done uh, in Paris, and they're working this into English now, and have all sorts of lexical resources which you really, really need if you're going to translate books and and. Uh, Oh God, I'm probably oh oh uh, Rivka Margolis, our star Yiddish teacher, who's been working on these issues for many many years, and I should have brought my list with us because now what I'm doing is forgetting people. Anita Norwich, one of the best, who is a a, a very seasoned scholar and translator, teaches and has taught many many uh, students at, at University of Michigan. So, anyways, pretty much everybody was there, and, and they were all quite uh, brilliant.
0: What was the energy like at the conference?
1: Oh, exceedingly high energy! We started on Saturday night, and of course, we had to wait till after Shabbos to begin. So I think everyone's going to be like utterly fatmated. You know, they've been traveling and they're exhausted, and it's already late at night. We purposely didn't serve wine at dinner so that people would be alert <laughs> for the thing. But actually, I've been to a million conferences. You know, usually you're kind of like sitting there, you know, you're trying your best to stay awake. This one, people were literally on the edge of their seats, and that energy kept up till the very end of the conference. It, it was. Boy, do we have challenges because none of it's easy, you know, but the issues are incredibly engaging. I mean, really, it's just, it's fun talking about all this, even if we don't have the answers.
0: What are some of those issues?
1: Well, the issues aren't, aren't easy, you know. Uh, I remember Barbara got up when she started speaking and she said, I used to define a uh, an optimist. She said, I used to define an incorrigible optimist as someone who learned the future tense in Yiddish. <laughs> so. Uh, but that was clearly, you know, as she was pointing out, wasn't the case. And this was no longer our problem. You know, we had plenty of young people there. But the challenges are, are, are practical. You know, when Larry Rosenwald got up, he said, um, referring to what's going on on Wall Street, he said, I represent the other 98%, meaning the 98% of the books that have yet to be, uh, to be translated. And he laid out what I thought was an incredibly uh, brilliant and bold vision of developing a very robust website that would, and I'll talk about the specifics of this, that would kind of give you the possibilities for actually making this happen. It would be a way that people could publish works in progress, you know, stuff they're working on, publish it kind of when it's not yet complete, and people could go on and and wiki it, which doesn't mean wiki like a free-for-all. Wiki, for those who don't know, means, you know, uh, active participation of the broader community that can go in and, and kind of correct things and fix things. But there would be a bulletin board or a kind of a, you know, a little notebook along with every one of these stories that gets posted up there. And people could say, you know, on page 42 you translated a britschker as a, this kind of a carriage and it's really that kind of a carriage, you know. Uh, way better to make your mistakes there than to get it in print and then let everybody pill- pillory you. Uh, so anyways, it's just a really practical way of getting a lot of people involved in the, in the process. It would also give a venue where people could, you know, post published works and solve part of the publication problems, uh, a place to share lexical resources to find words that aren't in the dictionary, and uh, a registry of what has been translated and what needs to be translated. So that's a big conception, you know, and it's very exciting. And the technical part's easy, you know. Uh, I remember uh, there was once a board member of ours, and he told them, he was talking at a meeting, and he said that uh, in 1969 when they first put the man on the moon, he said he called up his mother and he said, Ma, Ma, did you hear? They put a man on the moon. And his mother says, ah, I get dilla and gelt out, of, out and he says, oh, yeah, big deal. You know, with money, you can do anything. <laughs> so with money, you can definitely solve technical problems. The bigger problems, should I go on with these and just t- tell you what's, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. OK, because they're really, they're, I guess it's good when you have a conference like this and go away with more questions than answers because it's sort of the nature of this. I I always tell our staff here, I say, you know, if it were easy, everybody would do it, you know, because these solutions aren't obvious. And so I'll give you like a little range of them. Um, Probably the biggest tension, you know, uh, that came out was the tension between uh, expertise and broad-based participation. So, you know, for some of the people who have been translating for many, many years and do this professionally, it makes them really nervous, the idea that kind of all these people out there who don't really know what they're doing or they're just learning, you know, they're going to be, you know, uh, are going to be taking on these major projects, like having the interns do the operations in the hospital, you know, I mean, you you get a little bit uh, squeamish about this. You know, yikes, is this a good idea? But on the other hand, if you don't give people a chance and you don't give people a way to learn, you know, Nothing's going to get done. We're never going to you know, produce significant amounts of work. So that tension was clearly present. The next really big issue is one that I don't think we've solved, but, but we certainly understood it in stark relief. And that's the issue of how do you get new readers. So on the Yale project, as I said, you know, we're selling two, 300 copies of a book. That's an awful lot of work for a few hundred readers. And some of this is you know, great world literature. There's a project right now that David Rosenson's doing in, the, in uh, Russia where they're translating works of Yiddish and other modern Jewish literature into Russian, these gorgeous editions funded in part by the Avichav Foundation. Those are doing better. Those are selling between 3,500 and 5,000 copies per book, but they're working really hard at it. They're getting it into bookstores, they're going to book f- you know, fairs and exhibitions, and they're also um, working with a somewhat more bookish culture. You know, Russians read a lot of books, and Americans somewhat less so.
0: Right, and that's also still not a huge number.
1: No, no, <laughs> it's still not, uh, you know, the, the, the you know, 700,000 copies of a Stephen King novel or the, right. the you know, the gazillion million you know, copies of uh, Harry Potter or something. No, you're yeah. absolutely right about I mean, that.
0: not that this is Stephen King or Harry Potter, but still it's, you no, know, you'd expect... better, better,
1: better. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> well, actually, somebody mentioned that. They said, uh, you know, some people were saying how translation generally doesn't sell very well. But then someone else else said, yeah, but look at you know last year's bestseller was The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and, and the books that followed. And I mean, those were written in Swedish. And they take place in Stockholm and, and, and around the Swedish countryside. And uh, I don't think anybody said, oh, that book was written in Swedish. I'm not going to read it. You know, It was a competent translation. I have no clue who the translator was. I don't know the I name. Don't know either." and i was barely aware that it was translation when i was reading it but it was certainly riveting you know i couldn't wait to get home at night to finish the book you know i mean it was it was it was a great read so the question is you know is yiddish literature enough of a read you know or are there works in yiddish literature that are enough of a read to warrant you know similar kinds of attention uh, you know it's not as contemporary as that But on the other hand, some of it deals with the great issues, you know, the individual versus, you know, against society, the emergence of the individual, uh, certainly power and powerlessness, you know, war and peace. I mean, these have been big hits in the past, you know, these kind of things, uh, you know, men and women. I mean, really, all the great themes are there in Yiddish literature, and, and, and it is profound, and it is deep, and it does have power. So... You know, I think I think it can find readers. You know, on the other hand, the whole book market's also sort of you know eroding. Uh, Faith Jones pointed out that the latest prediction is there will be a thirty percent drop in demand for uh, hard hard books. You know, for real books as opposed to e-books. Um, so you know, these are all challenges that, that we face. So the trick is, how do you you know kind of make people aware that this exists? How do you get them to read it? So some people suggested uh, Justin Cami said we need to develop curricula that can be used and make use of these books, great idea. Someone else suggested book groups and a kind of like Translation of the Month Club, you know, like a Book of the Month Club and get these books out there. I think the main thing is we're not selling translations to the public. We're selling great literature, you know?
0: Yeah, and that's a big difference in marketing. Too. It really
1: is. And you know, the other thing is we don't really know what's there. I mean, you know, look, you work here every day. You just came up to my office. You walk, walked through the stacks to get here, right? right? None of us knows what all those books are. You know, I mean, there are plenty of scholars in the field. We had plenty of scholars working on our project at Yale, but we all trained with the same few people, and we all know the same few hundred books. Well, that's a few hundred books out of maybe, you know, 16,000, 17,000 books on the shelves here, maybe as many as 30,000, 40,000 books total. What are they all? Who, who knows? I don't know anything about Chilean Yiddish literature or. I know very little about South African Yiddish literature. You know, there are treasures waiting. When when I made my introduction at the conference, I said, you know, Moby Dick was published I think in 1851. Uh, Melville was already an established writer at that point. And when Moby Dick came out, it was very difficult for people to read. It was like kind of a, it was like Van Gogh with the sunflowers. It was just so ahead of its time that nobody got it. And people said, oh, this is an unreadable book. It was put on, put aside. Didn't sell at all and uh, you know Melville went on to write other things but that was a book that was just considered a failure and then in i think 1925 some english professor somewhere you know picked it up reread it and said oh my god this is the great american novel And maybe it's because I grew up in New Bedford, but it was required reading in high school. And I read it again in college and loved it, you know, and it's an amazing work. and How could you not recognize this as a great work of literature? Sometimes things are just ahead of their time, and we don't know what works of Yiddish literature are great. You know, we don't know if there are Moby Dick sitting on the shelves downstairs.
0: Right, especially because the the people who read Yiddish literature for pleasure, that number has declined tremendously, and that didn't happen for English with Moby Dick.
1: Yeah, that, that I'm a little embarrassed to say is a very small number. You know, w- w- I always feel like a tiny bit—I um, don't know—like in, in this uncomfortable position here that we get to know what people actually read. That's a little less so now that people are downloading the books from us, but we kind of see what books people order or what, they, what books they did order before the online books became available. The number of people who read Yiddish recreationally—I bet you I could count them on one hand. Right. You know, I mean. That I mean, there might be others that we don't know about, but that we do know about. Well,
0: I'm sure Catherine knows all of them, anyway. Her bibliographer. Yes,
1: right. But uh, so y- yes, I mean, people really aren't reading their way through all this literature, and I think we've got a big job ahead of us just to, just to do that, just to identify the books is a big job. But another place where Wiki works really well, because you open it up on a website, you say, "Okay, tell us what we should translate," and people will. I mean, I sat down with Sam Casa, who's a often a frequent teacher here and a professor of uh, Jewish history and Russian and German history at, at Trinity down in West Hartford. We're very close friends. I sat down with Sam last year at a Thai restaurant in West Hartford, and I said, okay, tell me all the books that you think should be translated, and let's start with memoirs. Well, that took the whole lunch, and uh, you know, by the time we got to the dessert, Sam had rattled off a list of maybe like 20 memoirs I hadn't heard of a single one of them. Every one of which is said, "This is one of the great works of literature. This is one of the amazing memoirs. This tells you everything you need to know about Jewish history in Poland." Uh, and none of them has been translated yet. We got the list. That's a start. But now we need the translators. So that brings us on to the rest of our challenge.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you think we will reach new readers? And
1: well, I, 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 I don't think I know the answer to that yet. I, 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 you know, no, nobody had a, nobody had a, an answer. Mm-hmm. All we do is to identify the problem. So, what's going to happen now that the conference is over is we're staying in touch obviously with everybody, you know, and, and there were so many really incredible people there, and we'll draw upon all their expertise and imagination to try to figure all this out, so we'll be setting up working committees and, and just kind of you know working our way through all this. What I can say is it will be very directly tied to what we're doing with educational programs here at the center. So. Next time you interview me, you'll ask me about all that, because because I mean we're really doing a lot in reaching out to high school students, to college students, to adults. Um, but I think all of that can make use of some of these materials. But it's it's a it's a it's a it's a very big challenge. You know, how do you get people to read all together? How do you get them to read Jewish books? I mean, as Josh Lambert pointed out, he said there are 500 new Jewish books a year come out in the United States alone. 500 a year, right? That's that's. Way more than one a day, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of books. Nobody can read that much. So how how is you know our incredible new translation of Arshavsky going to like jump out of the pack and everyone's going to read it? Um, it? It's an educational enterprise. You know, we certainly can use social media in kind of new ways of reaching young people and calling their attention to it. Uh, just because people spend time, you know, following their Twitter feed and seeing this new recommendation come up doesn't mean they won't read the book thereafter. You know, right. so. But I, I I don't think it's simple. That's like and you know what, that's only like one of the challenges that came out of the programme. Like yeah. as you'll hear there are a few other unsolved problems also.
0: Yeah, it felt like every minute there was a new question raised by a panelist, by someone in the audience asking a question. It just, yeah. were, it was a bombardment of, uh, yeah, so, of quandaries, I guess.
1: Yeah, so all right, so that's why we're here, you know, I mean, you know, we're here as a nonprofit organization. We have an incredible amount of kind of, you know, energy and imagination on the staff here. We have wonderful people all over the world that we work with. It's up to us to just mobilize everybody. and. What did Hillary Clinton say? It takes a village. You know, this is really going to take a whole world to pull off, to pull this off. I mean, and hopefully we can bring people together to do it. So, so should I raise another one of the questions sure, that, that got brought please. up that that never had occurred to me in a million years? So, the other question that emerged quite early on and, and got repeated over and over again was the issue of compensation, which means so how do you pay the translators exactly? And this is not a small problem. No, it's not. Uh, you know, in the project they're doing in Russia, they pay the translators a few thousand bucks a piece per book. But that's because you know, it's in Russia and people really need the work and, and there's not a tradition of high wages there. You know, you can't live on a few thousand dollars in the United States or in Canada or in other countries I and mean, you need to make a living. And it takes a year to translate a book. So, you know, you need, I don't know, $25,000, $30,000 minimum just to pay the rent and, you know, and eat so you can get the translation done. And how does that play out? Um, if people are going to post translations online, well, how do they get paid for their intellectual labor, you know? So uh, we didn't solve that problem. But but it's definitely got to be addressed. I mean, you can't expect people to work for free, or not everyone anyways, to work for free. It's certainly not young people, I mean, who do need to make a living somehow. So I think, you know, there are plenty of people who are willing to work, you know, de sacla, like pro bono, you know, to, to, to work for the good of society, but you still have to, uh, but you do still have to eat. So I think I don't, know, I don't know what the solution to that one is. You know, I guess those few books will make it commercially, but that's going to be precious few. I mean, The Times reported a while back that of all books published in the United States, not just Jewish books, I feel like Mel Brooks here, not just Jewish books, but all books published <laughs> in the United States, um, uh, only 2% sell more than 2,000 copies. And if you have a book that sells 2,000 copies, maybe if you're really lucky, you make two or $3,000 out of the deal. I mean, that's not exactly a living for you know, for a year's worth of work. So I I, 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 don't, I, don't know the solution on that one.
0: Right, and actually, I, I mean, there are a lot of young translators around this, <laughs> this world that I'm in right now, the Yiddish Book Center world, um, and a lot of them have said, you know, we get requests for translations by people who want a postcard translated, who want a diary translated, and they expect us to work for free. And it's, I mean, you know, on one hand, of course, you want to help people who yeah. have no access to this material that they have. But on the other hand, these people have to make a living. And that's a lot of time, especially if it's handwritten. It's right. like a, it's twice as much time as a typewritten... Yeah, uh, I think we
1: might have a solution for that one, though. We'll have to do this in another interview. Right. But we've been talking about a kind of wiki translation project. This is not for literary text and neat editing and all that, but just to like translate the postcards and the letters and stuff to develop a way in which people could simply uh, scan this material, upload it to a website that we would set up, and then you kind of just wiki it. Like people all over the world who have time, uh, you know, retired people, people who come home in the evening and want to take a crack at this, would be able to try to translate it, and they can type in the translation, and then other people can log on and... You know, correct mistakes and stuff. And it would create two things. It would give people translations of their work for free. It would involve a lot of people in the process. Uh, and it would also create a body of text because the price for putting it up there is that it stays in the public domain and other people can read it too. So it kind of creates a new sort of archive. But we'll talk about that another time because right, right. we've got way <laughs> more too much to talk about today and I know we're running out of time already. So, so, so the, the other big question that was like utterly unresolved, but was a really cool, I mean, a really, really, really interesting conversation. Is so, how exactly are we training this new generation? And people had a lot to say about this. I mean, you know, everyone who was there, uh, you know, had some very, very interesting observations and, and, and was ve- were very aware of the challenges. Rivka Margolis said that she said, translation is a lonely journey. In other words, it's a pretty solitary pursuit. I wrote, wrote a book a few years ago. Boy, was that a lonely enterprise, you know? In translation, even more so. It's very focused and very intense. And, um, you know, you gotta, you got to do it yourself. I mean, it's, t- it's at least to begin with. So how do you find people to work with? Can we set up like... A Faith Jones said that in Vancouver, she now has a translation collective of several people who get together once a week and they look at each other's work. And that's a wonderful model and pretty uh, decentralized, which means inexpensive. you know. And so that was a really interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, Barbara Harshov emphasized very strongly that you don't only need to know Yiddish, you really have to be able to master the target language, which in our case is English, at at least for starters. In other words, you have to be a really good English writer to do this, a bad translation is just a disservice, because people blame the original rather than the translation, right? <laughs> and so, um, that's that's an issue. Barbara said that translation is a combination of constraint and freedom, that you have to be very loyal to the original, but you also need the freedom to make a literary work out of the, you know, it can't be a slavish reproduction. It needs to become a new work of literature, and that's a that's a tension in and of itself. She also said that she said translation is pitch of kids. Pitch of kids, of course, is the you know the details, meaning that you can't blow it on the details. You can't get it wrong because again, I mean, there, there are some wonderful you know existing translations that have these glaring errors in them. They just got stuff wrong, or there are translations that just leave out salient details that didn't seem salient to the uh, to the translator. I know there's a I've often studied the story Chava by Shalom Aleichem, one of the Tavia stories, and at one point. Um, Tevye and his daughter Chava are talking about big philosophical issues of Jewish identity and universalism, and his wife comes out and she says, what are you talking about out there? She says, my borscht is already, you know, the borscht is already on the table and you're talking about these highfalutin issues, but she doesn't just say my borscht is, my milchike borscht is on the table, which is a significant detail because it kind of fits into a whole structure of. Dualism within Jewish life, and it affirms the kind of vochadik, or the everyday side of Jewish life. And I can make a whole, you can make a whole construct based on that. But for some reason, the translator didn't want to translate milchik, you know, dairy, borscht, and just left out that one detail, and you lose the whole structure because of it. So it, it, you've got to be loyal and you've got to kind of pull all that off, and it just takes a lot of knowledge to do that. Uh, Anita Norwich said that what's necessary in translation is humility you know, you've got to know what you don't know, and then be able to ask people. Right, so and that's
0: that. Also speaks to the importance of a community, of a collective. Or, I,
1: exactly. Yeah. I mean, years ago, I was translating some stories for Park and Treger. It was hard. It took a long time. I was doing Freidel Stock and a few women writers. I mean, it just they were really time consuming, and they were often words that I didn't know. And and you know, some like fifteen percent of Yiddish words aren't in the dictionary anyways. And back then, you know, twenty eight years ago, twenty nine years ago, I knew whom to call. You know, I would call up people and say, Hey, what's this word mean? What does that word mean? And people were very forthcoming. Uh, There are fewer and fewer people to whom one can make that phone, you know, place that phone call now. So all the more reason for these kind of, you know, online. You know, I should be able to post the word online and let the world tell me what it means, and they can argue it out and correct each other, and you know, and come up with an answer. But the 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 very nature. Oh, and then the last problem is that translation is not valued in the academy either. You know, young academics before they get tenure have to publish, and they get points that you know go towards their their tenure decision. But there are no points for translation. You can spend two years and publish a brilliant translation, it doesn't count for anything. So Barbara said, you know, people are working on this problem, but it is a problem. I mean, it's a, it's a big challenge that's going to have to that's going to have to get addressed. Um, so all of these things are make it, make it difficult. People had plenty of ideas of how to do it. You know, how do you trans, How do you train young people? Uh, someone suggested translation fellowships here at the year, like a kind of junior year abroad in translation, you know, at, at the Yiddish Book Center, and we would just pay for people to be here like we do for fellows now, and they would spend the year, you know, in a big room together with cubicles, translating and yelling over the top of the cubicle to each other, what does this mean, and what does that mean, and sharing work. It's a great idea, but you're probably talking about, you know, at least $100,000 a year to pull it off, and it's not quite clear where that money, you know, would come from. Another idea is to do a kind of fellowship program with, with lesser grants people who still have day jobs as people say you know uh, uh, who can then work on translations and we can help support them and bring them together from time to time to work together and uh, you know provide them with resources we can provide incentives like grants and, and uh, prizes that were up we've already started doing that um, we could try to get a list of volunteer mentors who would work with you know one or two translators in their community and that too became controversial because some people said sign me up, I'll do it right now. And others said, yeah, but who's going to pay me for my time if I'm going to be a mentor? And that tended to break down a little bit by age. I mean, the tenured professors, you know, who are pretty comfortable and, you know, uh, you know, they have enough time and they were willing to do this and this is a little bit of a giving back. And some of the younger people, you know, they're, they're working really hard as it is trying to get their tenure and they don't have time for it. And so, you know, all these, all these questions are sort of, out there, and are going to have to get resolved now. So, you know, where we're, the trans the conference was hardly the uh, solution to all the problems. It was merely the iteration of all the problems. I think of all the challenges.
0: Yeah, the aggregation of all the questions. Yes,
1: right. So now we really know what the challenges are. Now it's obvious why this hasn't been done before. You know, suddenly, you know, I, I went in there feeling all sorts of indignant. Can you believe that only two percent of Yiddish literature has been translated? Now I say. It's amazing. We've translated two percent of Yiddish literature, but we want to translate way, 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 way more than that. And and I think you know it's really going to take that village, and that's the job ahead for the Yiddish Book Center and for the fund for the translation for Jewish literature. And for you know this is definitely not a case where they say Yedamach Shabbos fazich. Everybody makes Shabbos for themselves. If ever there was a time for you know people of goodwill to join together and you know accomplish a very great thing, this the. the The moment is now. The technology is here to make it possible. The eager young people are on hand who are reasonably, you know, uh, who know a lot already and and we can build upon that knowledge. So I think the stars are lining up, Emma, but boy, have we got our work cut out for us.
0: Um, Well, thanks, Aaron. Uh, Looks like that's all the time we have. You can listen to audio recordings of the Translating Yiddish Literature Conference on the Yiddish Book Center's website, yiddishbookcenter.org. I'm Emma Morgenstern. Thanks for listening to Samovar, a weekly visit with Aaron Lansky. Our original theme music was written and performed by Hank Netsky. This has been a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts.